Hello, kaiju lovers! Nathan Marchand coming to you here, OOC, out of character, to introduce this little bit of bonus audio that I'm sending out to you right now. Don't worry, don't worry, the rest of Season 3 is coming along nicely. My goal is to have it all done by the end of the month and Season 4 underway, and you'll be getting the episodes faster come July... Or at least before G-Fest. Anyway, what you're about to hear is an Ultraman 101 panel that I gave at JFAX up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is it's primarily an anime convention, but the name stands for Japanese Animation Film and Art Expo. So I gave some tokusatsu panels over there and they're all basically crash courses 101s because I'm assuming not everybody there necessarily knows anything about tokusatsu or maybe is toku curious and would like to know where to start or learn a few things to know how to get into it so because I did something like this already on Henshin Men my Henshin Hero podcast I decided to share it here as opposed to there because I guess I've already done an episode there, which was based on an article that my co-host for that episode, Danny DeManna, of the Godzilla Novelization Project, wrote for Kaijurama Magazine. So, without further ado, enjoy this. Although I should mention, the reason why it cuts off abruptly is because when I was recording this for YouTube on StreamYard... The automated YouTube overlords got mad at me for playing the trailer for the upcoming Ultraman Blazer, the next Ultraman show, but not when I played five theme songs from throughout the history of the franchise. Figure that one out. Anyway, there is another reason I'm sharing it here besides the obvious connections to Subarai and all that that will all be made clear in a few months. Thank you. All righty then. Hello, Kaiju Ramen readers, and hello to the heroes of the internet, the listeners of the Henshin Men podcast. I am coming to you live from JFAX in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with some lovely people here who you can't see because you have to you know, look at my ugly mug and, <laughs> and look at my slide presentation here. But you and everyone else who is watching and or listening to this is about to get a crash course in a Japanese institution. <laughs> that being Ultraman. The... What, has anyone here ever heard of Ultraman, seen Ultraman, anything like that? So we have a couple of you who are, ba well, a couple of you who are basically noobs. Uh, you young, uh, young lady, you're just, it's like, I'm here, I don't know a thing What's about Ultraman, what's going on? <laughs> Do you, oh yeah, it's, it's a franchise that is creeping up to its 60th anniversary at this point. Yeah. Ultraman... The only real equivalent I can give to Americans for Ultraman is that he's basically the Japanese Superman. Like, that level of icon. And actually, Ultraman is one of the most popular fictional characters in Japan. He's even bigger than Godzilla. 1966, which we'll get into that. We will get into that. So, like I said... 
It's a gigantic franchise with multiple films and television shows and comics and manga and all kinds of things. It's a big elephant. This is, like I said, it's a crash course. It's an overview. And it's my way of giving you an opportunity to get, like I said, get an overview of the franchise and decide for yourselves, okay, I want to jump in at this point. I want to try this part of the franchise or something like that or this particular show or or whatever, this facet of it. Because it can be very intimidating when there's this much stuff. All right? I get it. Even I, even though I'm giving this presentation, I am still on my ultra journey, as I like to call it. I still haven't seen everything I am still getting through it, but I've also done a lot of research on stuff. I've seen a lot of it. I haven't seen all of it. So some of this stuff I still haven't gotten to. And with Mill Creek, the last couple of years has been releasing a lot of these shows and movies, most of which have been released for the first time ever. And there's a reason for that. There was A lot of it is legal shenanigans. That could be a whole presentation unto itself about you know the original studio that made Ultraman Subaraya Productions got nailed with you know with some it wasn't necessarily their fault it was basically some very exploitative foreign studios that gummed everything up and basically used legal loopholes to keep them from releasing a lot of their stuff and they finally took care of that a few years ago I think it was 2019 and <laughs> ink wasn't even dry on those legal documents, and then they make this big announcement saying, hey, guys, guess what? You get everything. And they've been doing a huge push with the international market the last few years. They want Ultraman to be an international brand and not just a Japanese icon, an international icon. So, you know, like I said, there's a lot to get into. So let's get started, shall we? Let's get started. So... What is the concept behind Ultraman? And I bring that up because there, there are, with rare exceptions, any Ultraman show that you watch will be basically the same concept, which is a being of light, usually aliens, who bond with a human, or they take human form. There are a few that just take human form. They don't, have, they don't bond with a human host. And then they transform, they henshin, that's the Japanese word for it. I'm doing a henshin 101 panel tomorrow. By the way, if I, I should have introduced myself. I'm Nathan Marchand. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot to do that. I'm too used to people just knowing. Or if I'm not in podcast mode necessarily, I'm not you know leading with my name <laughs> all the time. So my apologies for that. You know, the, I do a lot of stuff. I'm in the vendor hall with my friend Eric Anderson, who's a local here. I'm from Indiana and you know, we're in the vendor hall in the corner with nerd chapel, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. But anyway, so he transforms into a monster fighting giant and these Ultramen are usually helped, usually helped by a human anti monster team. So in this case, this is the original Ultraman from 1966, the OG, as I like to call him, and then this is the SSSP. I forget what it stands for. I, I know, I'll turn in my Ultra Fan card. But the, in the United States, 
when the show was brought over in the 60s. They were called the Science Patrol. So I'm, I've gotten very used to just calling them the Science Patrol because it's easier to remember other than the acronym. So we'll get into that, the, that cast of characters, though. We'll talk about that a little bit because I'm going to spend a good chunk of this presentation giving you background information on the early days of Ultraman because it will inform everything going forward. And then we'll just do a, a quick overview over the rest of the franchise. So Ultraman is actually not the start of the franchise. There was another show just before I called Ultra Q, which has also been released by Mill Creek. It was 28 episodes long, and it's, if I had to describe it, I would say it's the Twilight Zone meets the X-Files. It's, semi, it's a semi-anthology. It follows several characters, a reporter, two pilots, and a scientist as they investigate strange phenomenon. phenomena. Not every episode has kaiju in it, but the most popular episodes of Ultra Q were the ones with kaiju. Now, I would actually say, personally, having seen all of it, I think some of the some of the best episodes are not for me are not necessarily the ones with monsters in it. Not even necessarily the kaiju, not like you know the giant monsters. The probably the most iconic, I would say, of the Ultra Q episodes it has a monster in it, but he doesn't turn gigantic. It was a monster called Kanigan that's actually based on a Japanese fairy tale about a, a greedy kid who gets turned into a monster that is basically like a purse. He keeps eating money. Like his mouth is like the, the mouth of a purse and it has a zipper. And he would just, all he does is he keeps trying to eat money, but he's never satisfied. He's always hungry. So it's this lesson in, you know, it's this lesson about avoiding the vice of greed. So it, it's a really interesting episode. And actually, the final episode, which I'll talk about a little bit more here in a, in a few minutes, is an absolutely fantastic episode that is, it, that is about as Twilight Zone as you can get. I absolutely love it. It has to do with a phantom train. It's a, a phantom bullet train. And it is amazing. Absolutely amazing. The title, interestingly came from a gymnastics move. The name of the gymnastics move was Ultra C, which is really funny because there's an Ultraman show I just finished recently where they have characters who are practicing gymnastics and someone makes mention about how they just did an Ultra C. I'm like, haha, I see what you did there, show. I, I see I see what you did there. What? I Ultra the Oh wait, 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 do I the no one else will hear this, but the people who are listening, whoever, I have a rim shot on my soundboard. I can't hear it because I don't have my headphones on, but <laughs> I ultra see what you did there. And Ultra Q on it uh to it uh, on its own is kind of a it's like a a sub franchise within this, within Ultraman, because it spawned a sequel series that was called Neo Ultra Q, which has also been released by Mill Creek a remake series called Ultra Q Dark Fantasy, and a film, and among other things. There's also a radio drama and things like that. Unfortunately, everything but Neo Ultra Q has not been officially released in the United States 
yet. The original series and Neo Ultra Crew of all we've gotten so far. So, give you a little bit more background on the original Ultraman. Because there's some heavy hitters in the tokusatsu realm who worked on this show. Both in front of and behind the camera. So our crew here, we have Eiji Subaraya. You may not know the name. He's the creator of the show. He's a special effects director. And he started Subaraya Productions, obviously. It's a family business. Or at least it was. There's Bandai, the toy company, has a controlling share in the studio now because they needed money to survive. <laughs> the studio mismanaged, it was mismanaged for a little while there, so they needed someone to come in and make sure that they didn't go under. But you may not know who A.G. Superaya is, but if you've watched any Godzilla films, particularly the old Godzilla films, or anything related to Ultraman, you have seen his work. He actually got his start at Toho, among other things, he's most famously, I should say, working on Godzilla films. And then in the mid-60s, he struck out on his own and made Subaru Productions to start working in television because television was quickly, in Japan, much like it was in the rest of the world, becoming the preferred method of entertainment, mode of entertainment, medium, I guess you say, of entertainment over going to the movies. And he was ahead of the curve there and got into TV. And, you know, because he could do, he could basically do a kaiju movie every week with these TV shows, with Ultra Q and with Ultraman as well. He unfortunately died in 1969, which will factor in as we do this overview here. But in Japan, Eiji Tsuburaya is a huge, huge deal. I can't overstate that. To accomplish in the United States what Eiji Tsuburaya did in Japan, the best way I, I read somebody describe it would be in the United States, you would have to have created both King Kong and Superman. That's how big of a deal he is. And then I have to mention this because screenwriters need more credit than they get, need to get more credit. But Shinichi Sekizawa, who was actually a Toho screenwriter, wrote a lot of classic Godzilla films, among other things, for Toho. Him and a guy named Takeshi Kimura. Yeah, Takeshi Kimura. And he wrote the first episode of Ultraman, which I didn't know about until more recently. I've actually done a panel presentation on both of those screenwriters because, like I said, screenwriters need more love. Speaking as a writer myself, screenwriters need more love. Okay, and then also we had Akio Jasoji, who is actually an art house film director. And you always know when you're watching an Akio Jasoji episode of Ultraman because it's full style and it's a little weird. <laughs> and he worked on, I, I try to remember, I think he worked on Ultra Q, I don't remember. He worked on a couple of Ultraman shows. I know he worked on the first few. And he also directed Ultra Q the movie. Yeah, I think that's what it is. He directed Ultra Q the movie, and he did some newer Ultraman shows. You always know when you're watching one of his. And then another name we have to mention is Tol Narita. He was the creature designer, and he designed the original Ultraman. And this design, I'll show you some better pictures of it. This design is the basis 
from which all of the many, many, many other Ultramen who have come since, that is the base that they've been base, that that they have come from. Okay, so our cast for the original show is Susumu Kurobe as Shin Hayata, who's still with us. And he's been in some other uh, some other Tokusatsu shows too. He's been on some Common Rider. He's been on uh, weirdly interestingly, he's been on Super Sentai. So he's the only thing he hasn't done is Godzilla. And then he would just he would have the hat trick right there. <laughs> uh, re, re, I actually know he's been in Common Rider because I just saw him in Common Rider Black. I just finished watching that. He was a mad scientist in that, but he plays Shin Hayata who is the human host for Ultraman, the original show. And again, I have to bring him up because what the show did it becomes the basis for the rest of the franchise. And then you have Akiji Kobayashi as Captain Toshio Muramatsu. He's the captain of the... He's the commanding officer, I should say, of the Science Patrol. Hiroku, Hiroko Sakurai as Akio, uh, Akio Fuji. You could call her the token girl, but she's the communications officer. This is, and these archetypal characters are what you're going to see in the subsequent series. So it, it might sound a little Star Trek ish, too, you know, a captain, a communications officer, things like that. But just like in the original Star Trek, that setup of characters is what we kept getting in subsequent shows. And then Sandayu Doku, Dokumamushi. As Daisuke Arashi, he's their weapons guy. I think he was also... no, Yeah, he was the weapons guy. And then, if I remember correctly, my, uh, I may have listeners or viewers yelling at yelling at me right now. You know, send me angry letters. I dare you. <laughs> Leave comments. I will fight you in the comments. <laughs> Masanari Nihei as Mitsuhiro Ide. He was the comic relief. He's the funny guy. And then Satoshi Bin Furuya, he was the Ultraman suit actor. Because in most tokusatsu shows, unlike in American superhero sh uh, movies or television, they will have, most of the time, they will not have the same actor in the costume. They will have a face actor. It's what they call They have the face actor, and then they have the suit actor. And that's in large part because they don't want the face actor getting hurt doing all of the stunts. The, the original Kamen Rider, you know where I'm getting that, Fujioka, who played, uh, played Hongo, yeah, Takeshi Hongo, in the original Kamen Rider. Man was so crazy and so talented for a while early on in the show he played the secret identity, and he put the costume on, and he rode the motorcycle because Kamen Rider is a motorcycle-riding superhero. He did everything, and then he got hurt and had to leave to recover. So they had to make a new character. But then they made lemonade out of those lemons because now they had two Kamen Riders, and then after Hongo came back, they could do team-ups. It was amazing. And then a second rider became a trope of Kamen Rider. It's cool. It, you know, it's just kind of cool how that all works out. And I have met Ben Furuya at a couple of conventions. He is the snappiest dresser you will ever see. You, you know what I'm talking about. I see you nodding. Yeah. He always shows up wearing really snazzy suits, sunglasses, and he is he absolutely loves fans. And he doesn't even ask. He just assumes. You know, when you do a 
when you get a photo op with him, you do the pose. We'll get to the poses with Ultraman, and he will and he will inspect it to make sure it's good. So he yeah, so he'll be like, he'll check it. He's like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, and then. I have to bring him up, but Haruro Nakajima, who is unfortunately no longer with us, he was the suit actor for not all of the kaiju that are in this show, but for a lot of them. And he famously played Godzilla for 12 movies in about 18 years. Yeah, 1974, so he was the first. Excuse me, 1954 to 1972. And he, he got he kept getting job, he kept getting work. He was friends with A.G. Superaya, and Superaya was like, "Hey, you want to be on my TV show?" And I remember hearing about how he he would always have a bit of a friendly competition. Like he knew Ben Furuya. Ben Furuya was a little younger than he was, a little newer, you know. And then in, in Japan, you know, you've heard the term senpai. It's because that's like an upperclassman. You're a little farther along. And he made it. Nakajima would make it very clear. It's like, oh yeah, I'm the senpai, and would give Ben Furuya a hard time because he's like, oh, you're going to kill me today? Because <laughs> every time he was on the show, he had to die. Because <laughs> he's the monster of the week. So <laughs> Ultraman's going to win, except for the last episode. But I don't think Nakajima was the last monster, which was Zeton. I don't think that was him in that suit. But anyway, so continue on. Ultra Q was a massive hit. Absolutely massive hit. So, TBS, Tokyo Broadcasting System, the network, you know, didn't want to waste a good thing, so they, they asked Subaraya if he can make them a new show with a few conditions. It had to be in color, because Ultra Q was in black and white, although they've colorized it now. And personally, I'm kind of, I haven't seen what Ultra Q looks like colorized, but I'm very mixed about colorizing black and white anything. <laughs> But, you know, it's neither here nor there. It had to feature kaiju prominently because they were incredibly popular at this time. It was like superheroes are now. They were very ubiquitous at that point. In the, they were at the cinema and they were on TV. It was crazy. And he also had to make the main protagonist and make a main protagonist who could fight the kaijus kaiju to kaiju. Okay? So the main protagonist had to be either a kaiju or on par with a kaiju. And they wanted an Ultra Q actor to return. Now, it ended up being, if I remember correctly, it was, let me get her name here, make sure I get her name right. Yeah, Hiroko Sakurai, she was in Ultra Q. She was the reporter. So she came back. It's the, you can't see her very well in that picture. It's uh, from the second from the left that I believe that is her. And Subaraya wanted to stick with the human team aspect and feature a friendly alien. This was what he wanted to do personally. So they went through a few, uh, a few ideas with this. So their first idea, and you'll see this is concept art. At the top right there, that's concept art. Those were early designs for what eventually became Ultraman. But the, here's the thing. They don't waste good ideas or designs because they ended up coming back in some form or another later, which is what I have there at the bottom. So their original idea was something called Woo, which would have been an alien creature that befriends a reporter, but the SDF, the self-defense forces, that's what they call the Japanese military, sees the monster as a threat, naturally. 
So basically, for what I understand, this was Doctor Who. Because Wu, the title alien monster, is going to be kind of comical. And they, you know, him and his friend, his companion, that's what they call him in Doctor Who, companion would go on all of these shenanigan adventures and things like that. Didn't happen. But that name ended up getting used for a Yeti monster in the original Ultraman. And it became the basis for a show that Subarai made in the mid-2000s. It was called Bioplanet Woo, I think is what it's called. I don't know a whole lot about it, and it hasn't been released here yet. I'm hoping that it does because it seems kind of interesting. And then the next idea that they toyed with was Bemular. So this would have featured a defense team that disguises themselves as photographers or artists. But little do they know that one of their members can transform into a heroic bird-like warrior. And that's who you have there at the, at the end. That's Bemular. And he would have been a straight-up hero. Okay, But the problem was the network wasn't so sure about him. They thought he looked kind of scary. And you know they knew a lot of kids would be watching this, and they weren't sure about that. So they didn't really want to really go with that. But the interesting thing is, again... Subarai is not going to waste any of this. Bemular was the name of the first kaiju in Ultraman, which is what I have down there right under him. That is the original Bemular. And then he was reimagined as a more Ultraman sort of character in both the Netflix anime, which is based on a manga, and he was like that in the manga as well. He's a very mysterious character. And then the other one they toyed with, and they toyed with this for a really long time, was Redman. No, it's don't it doesn't that name does not have the racial connotations that it does over here. Okay, just so you know, it was just because he wore a red costume. That was it. And they went through several different designs for that that you can see. And as they progressed, they started inching closer to the final Ultraman design. So he was this devilish-looking alien warrior who survived the destruction of his world at the hands of Planet X, which I think is just funny because there's a Planet X in Godzilla films. And he comes to Earth where he accidentally kills a human and bonds with him to save his life. Again, we're inching closer to what becomes Ultraman. They ended up not going with this design or this name, but Supro in the early 70s made a series of basically minisodes that they would air on TV that would they would show them between shows. They were only like five minutes long. And it was called Red Man, and that's Red Man, the Red Man from the 70s there at the end. There's also a comic book based on this character now being produced in the United States. And I've seen a little bit of Red Man. That show is ridiculous. There's basically no story. It's just... Red Man wanders into the Japanese wilderness, finds a monster, and fights it. That is that is it. You don't even need subtitles because nobody talks. <laughs> okay. So what we have here, that is the Ultraman suit. They made refinements to it as the show went on. As you could tell, it looks a little rough there at the beginning, but then you get all the way to the end, and that's the design that we all know and love. They had to refine it as they went. So, for the final design, Tol Narita 
drew from the Greek concept of cosmos, order and harmony, as opposed to the Greek concept of chaos, which is what he used for Ultra Q. Because the whole idea, because Ultra Q, the Q stands for question, and it's all about how things are out of whack. The environment is out of whack, and all these weird things are happening. And that could be, it could be ecological, it could be spiritual, it could be a lot of different things, but things are out of whack, and all these strange, like I said, these strange things are happening. But he wanted to go more with harmony in this. That's why you'll see that Ultraman has a very tranquil face. He has a very tranquil expression. And obviously, even though they toyed early on with having the mouth move, when he, if you would make noises, not so much when he would talk, but if he would grunt or anything, they toyed with the idea of making the mouth move, but they left it, stay, they ended up leaving it alone because they wanted him to have this very tranquil expression. So even when he has to fight and kill a monster, He's being harmonious. You even get the impression in some cases he doesn't even necessarily want to do it. It's a very Japanese concept. So he has two, he's iconically two colors, red and silver. So silver was supposed to be a rocket's steel because it's supposed to be a very space age sort of a thing. And red, for what I read, no pun intended, was supposed to be the surface of Mars. So it was showing that he's an alien. So it's a, he's a rocket ship and he's an alien, if you want to look at it that way. Akira Sasaki, who was Narita's assistant, he was a sculptor. He ended up finalizing the face and the head. So he came up with the crest and the mouth, the eye shape, all of that. Now, something that upset Tol Narita that has been a key facet of Ultraman from the get-go is the color timer. The color timer, you can see it here on this picture. It's that light on his chest. It will start blinking and it will beep when his energy levels are getting low. Now, in the original show, it was because they, could, he, they put a limitation on him, which is that he could only be Ultraman for three minutes. They did that because they thought Ultraman was too invincible. So they're trying to give him an Achilles heel. So he has to beat the monster in three minutes. Okay. Not every subsequent Ultraman has, has specifically had a three-minute timer. It's more just like the longer the fight goes on, the more energy he expends and the more tired he gets. And when he's really low on energy, the color timer will start to flash and beep. That was added at the last second. It was not part of Tolnarita's original design, and it upset him. It upset him, which is why, and we'll talk about it at least a little bit, when you get to the movie Shin Ultraman, he doesn't have a color timer. They they did that to honor the original design that Tolnarita came up with. And it was actually, I think, and they also did it, and when they did that, they actually got a hold of his family. I think it was his son, and they told him, like, hey, we're doing this in honor of your dad, and they were very honored by that. But it will also it also helped to create some suspense, so that way you know it's like, oh my gosh, Ultraman could die. Like when the color timer starts going off, you're like, oh my gosh, Ultraman's gonna die. And then when he wins, people get excited, so it's gonna make people cheer. That was their whole was their whole mindset. Okay. So Ultraman's fighting style was meant to be a mixture of grappling, Greco-Roman wrestling, and some Japanese martial arts because. They wanted him to not necessarily look like he's doing Earth-based combat. They wanted him to be a little otherworldly. Now, according 
to Mr. Furuya. There's actually a connection to my home state when it when it came to Ultraman's like this pose right here, the stance. Like I said, there's a bit of an Indiana connection for me. I don't know how true it is. But has anyone here ever seen the movie Rebel Without a Cause? He that's he says that's where he got the idea for this pose. It's James Dean holding a knife in Rebel Without a Cause. And James Dean is from Indiana. That made me extremely happy. <laughs> but, you know, could be just telling stories. We don't know. So, the series premiered, air quotes up to the mic, like my friend Luke Giaconetti, <laughs> premiered on July 10th, 1966, with The Birth of Ultraman, which was a hastily made stage show that aired in Ultra Q's time slot, preempting the final episode, so the final episode didn't get aired until, I think, a few months later. The Because Subaraya and the network wanted to beat another show, a competing show that was starting, I think, a few weeks after that, called Ambassador Magma. So my apologies, I... Spelled that wrong. That's a typo. It's Ambassador Magma, which in the United States is called Space Giants. So the first proper episode aired on July 17th, and 34% of Japan watched this premiere. Now, I've seen the state this stage show. It was actually kind of lost media for a while, and then somebody found it, and Milk Creek actually released it. It's pretty shoddy like i said they threw it together really fast and it's there's ultraman weirdly enough ultraman's hardly in it but and that's what this first picture here that's from that it was in black and white and stage shows actually became a staple of ultraman there's a lot of ultraman stage shows going on all the time in fact a lot of times they use the same suits for monsters and ultraman in the newer television shows and vice versa for the stage show. Again, trying to save a little bit of money. And it did air in the United States in the mid to late 60s. It was uh, dubbed by United Artists TV. They picked it up just in that fall. The show was still airing in Japan, and they picked it up in the fall because they were that impressed. And it was a staple of U.S. syndicated television until the 80s, before my time. But still, apparently. So, that's Crash Course in the original show. And now I'm going to do a little bit of an overview of the entire franchise. I will not be covering everything. Because there's a lot, especially in the newer stuff. Because there are web series and there's some movies. And there's a lot of stuff. I'm going to be hitting the major, the major things throughout it. And some terminology that I want to make you aware of, you'll see it here where it says Showa. That is a term that you're going to see a lot in not just Ultraman, but in the like Godzilla fandom, Tokusatsu fandom. It actually has to do with the Japanese calendar system, which is based on the reigns of the emperor. Now, Japan quick primer, Japan has not had an emperor who ruled the country since the end of World War II. 
it, they're basically the emperor in Japan is basically like the British monarchy. He reigns, but he does not rule. And that goes back to you know the U.S. the Allied occupation of Japan, and that's a whole to do. That's a that's a whole presentation unto itself. But it was during that that they changed it. But the way the Japanese calendar system works is they will start it at one whenever a new emperor takes power. So the Showa era actually started in 1926 and went all the way to 1989. He was the longest reigning emperor in the history of Japan. But instead of saying 1926, which is how we Westerners would do it using the Roman calendar, that would be Showa 1. And I know that because... When I went to G-Fest, which is a convention centered around Tokusatsu, Godzilla especially, and they would have Japanese guests on there, they had a an interpreter who was actually an American who lived in Japan and he picked up the language. And the guests would actually give the year based on the Japanese calendar system and he would have to pause for a second, think about it, and translate that into the Roman calendar year. You know, well, as it was, it's really interesting. So... You have what I like to term the Subaraya trilogy because these were the three Ultra series that A.G. Subaraya himself worked on before his death in 1969, which is Ultra Q. We've talked about Ultra Q. Then the original Ultraman, which ran for 39 episodes, and there was one compilation film that was released, I think it was the 1967, so the year after the show finished. And then in 1967 which some call the year of the kaiju because every major studio in Japan and two in South Korea released a kaiju film. That was like the pinnacle of kaiju popularity in Japan. It's crazy. It's like how people complain about how there's like 5 million Marvel movies a year. Yeah, it was kind of like that. So you have Ultra 7. Now, in this picture right here, Ultra 7 is the guy uh, to, the le- to the left of Ultraman. And at the time when they were doing Ultra 7, it, wasn't, it was meant to be a spiritual successor. It wasn't supposed to be a sequel, so to speak. It's just like the branding of Ultra. Now, it got retconned later to be part of the same universe. But... That ran for 49 episodes. It's darker and a bit more adult in its themes, and it's a bit more like Star Trek. So I say, you know, so like Ultra Q is kind of like the X Files and the Twilight Zone. Ultraman is more in that sort of a spirit, but Ultra Seven is more like I said, like the original Star Trek by comparison. And like the original Ultraman, it was dubbed. But from what I read, it was dubbed in the mid-80s and it never got showed on TV until 10 years later on TBS. Now, the only thing that's interesting about that is that there's an episode of Ultra 7 that ended up being controversial. And so it's the episode's basically been vaulted. Like, if you go pick up Ultra 7, the Ultra 7 set from Mill Creek, they skipped the episode. Can't see it. Now, I found a place where you could watch it because somehow it got dubbed. And it did air on TBS. And I found it. Quality was awful, but I at least got to see the episode. And it was banned for the most Japanese of reasons that would take a few minutes to explain. And I don't know if I necessarily have that time right now because we have a lot of stuff to get through. 
And then you get to the 70s. It took a few years off. Like I said, Eiji Tsuburaya died in 1969. The Japanese film industry crashed in 1970. So there's a lot going on. They just weren't able to make new stuff. And then you get to, like I said, 1971, and there's a new show called The Return of Ultraman, which ran 51 episodes. It was, like I said, the first series without Eiji Tsuburaya. At this point, his kids are running the studio. And it was originally meant to feature the original Ultraman, which is why it's called Return of Ultraman. But instead, you uh, but instead it gets Ultraman Jack, who is sitting, who is to the left in this picture, is to the left of Ultra Seven. Ultraman Jack, which was a name he got later, they didn't call him that in the show. It was in the eighties they started calling him Ultraman Jack. Him and Ultraman look freakishly similar. <laughs> If you just looked at their silhouettes, you can't tell them apart, admittedly. But then, like, there was another Ultraman named Zoffy who showed up at, in the last episode of the original Ultraman, and they look basically the same, too. You have to, the silhouettes look the same. You have to look at the finer details to tell them apart. And this was, this show is noteworthy, because I'm just giving little bullet points about each one, because we could get into a lot of stuff about each one of these shows. But the main thing that Return of Ultraman did was that it established the continuity with the previous series. It officially made Ultra 7 part of the same universe. So that's the main its main contribution and it also features the first crossover between the the Ultra of that show and previous Ultraman. That's the other thing it's known for. That's how it did establish the continuity by bringing them back. My apologies if the text is a little small. 1972. At this point, Subaraya is cranking out Ultraman shows every year. Because the way Japanese, a lot of Japanese television works is that instead of renewing a show for multiple seasons, although anime does this a lot, they will just make a new show with new characters in the same universe, in the same brand, similar concept every year. So 1972, you have Ultraman Ace which ran for 52 episodes. It's more of a superhero show than a mystery show because they're trying to compete with Kamen Rider. Kamen Rider was really popular at this time. So if I had to characterize, because the Showa era of Ultraman, you know, there's, there's kind of two halves to it. I would describe the Super Raya trilogy as being like, that's where everything gets established. Like all the tropes and the characters and everything. You know, with Ultra Q, Ultraman, Ultra 7, they all get established there. It definitely has A.G. Subaraya's touch to it. You get to 70s Ultraman, and it's a drug trip. <laughs> like, every each one of them is a different flavor of crazy. <laughs> Return of Ultraman is the sanest out of probably the 70s Ultra. It's a little bit nutty. But, you know, it gets a little bit kind of Lovecraftian at points. But when you get to Ultraman Ace, it's a straight-up acid trip. It is bonkers. Would you like to sit down, sir? Okay, thank you. Yeah. The thing that Ultraman Ace is really known for is it had two Ultra hosts. Not just one. It had two, including the first female host who got kicked off the show halfway through it because of pushback from viewers. 
I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I don't like throwing this term around unless I think it, you know, unless I think it, you know, it, it's accurate. It was sexism. And it upset because I really liked her. And like her and the guy, they were like two, they, they weren't like brother and sister or anything. They were just in the right place at the right time, both trying to save people during a monster attack and then Ultraman Ace. And Ultraman Ace is to the left of Jack there. He has the big mohawk. He looks, he's a little, he's a little skinnier than the rest of them too. And they were going to call it Ultra Ace, but that was our, that name was already taken. So that's why they, that's when they started doing the Ultraman new name, you know, so he's Ultraman Ace. Yeah. So they were, they were both trying to save people during a monster attack and he bonded with both of them while they were trying, because they were trying to save people during a monster attack. And then they both joined the science patrol team. And they both had rings. They had rings, and they would have to basically touch fingers or touch the rings. Whoop. Killing the microphones. Touch them together so they could transform. You know, and so and they would they would also have to backflip in the air because that's what you do. <laughs> it's just what you do. But yeah, because of pushback, they got rid of her. Now it turned out the girl was a moon princess and she went back to the moon kingdom cool and she came back once or twice after that but i was upset when i was watching it's like you people you people you jerks why would you do that and ever since then it's just been the guy like if they've brought ultraman ace back it's just the guy that he transforms into although there was a movie where they they set it in an alternate universe that's closer to our world and then the Ultramen start coming over to that universe because of multiversal shenanigans. But the thing that was cool about it was called Superior 8 Ultra Brothers. What was really cool is that they brought back all of the original actors from the Showa era and some from the, from the newer shows. And they were not playing the actual characters. They were playing different characters that were just a lot like them. And in that movie, they brought because they brought back both the guy and the girl from Ultraman Ace, but they weren't the same characters, but they were husband and wife, which I thought was really cute because they toyed with a potential romance between the two of them in the show, and then that got cut short because of sexism. Curse your sexism! Anyway. <laughs> and then after that, you had Ultraman Taro, 1973, ran 53 episodes. This is very fairy tale esque And Taro... Remember, uh, Taro was the, the bullhorn-looking guy to the right of the original Ultraman. You know, Taro, Taro. Taro is a name from a lot of Japanese fairy tales. That one, how would I, so like, you know, so if Ultraman Ace is an acid trip, this is, you know, you smoke too much weed, I guess. You know, it's a little, it's a little crazy. Because it's a fairy tale, they get very strange with a lot of the stories that they tell, because they're all ba most of them are based off of Japanese fairy tales. And it introduced the first, not the first female ultra host, the first female ultra, because that's that's the generic term for them. If, if it's not ultra man or ultra woman, they're just called ultras. That's the catch-all. So it introduced the first female ultra who was the mother of ultra, or as I like to call her, ultra mom. And there's, they also introduce, I can't remember if it's this one or the show after it, but they, all, they also eventually introduce her husband, 
father of Ultra, naturally. I call him Ultra Dad. And he has, you know, he has big bull-looking horns, too, because that's what you do. <laughs> it's, it's what you do. And Mother of Ultra is Taro's mother. So you actually get to see the, uh, the literal birth of an Ultraman in this. Like, the first episode is Ultraman Taro is born and then goes and bonds with a human. It's wild. It's wild. You also get to see, for the first time, the Ultraman home planet, which is M78. Well, it's the M78 Nebula. That's where he's from. And then they establish later that the name of the planet is Planet Ultra, because obvious name is obvious. There are worse things. <laughs> 1974, Ultraman Leo. Leo is the one, uh, the second from the left there. Who also kind of has a, oh, it looks like he has some horns there. That is him next to his brother, Astra. They were both in this show, ran 51 episodes. This is when they really cranked the action up to 11. Because this is when Bruce Lee is the thing. So the action goes crazy in this show. It is intense. It is nuts. It is a Hong Kong action movie in rubber suits. I love it. It's also on crack. <laughs> lots of crack and lots of caffeine. This this show is ballistic. Like it just goes, it just goes. It's always, always going. <laughs> it's nuts. And the other thing that it's noteworthy for is Dan Maraboshi, Ultra 7, returns as the team captain in this. And they give him a really interesting story because in the first episode, him and Ultraman Leo, who in this, in this Ultraman Leo, both Ultraman Leo and Ultra 7 don't have human hosts. They are ultras who take human form. And Ultra 7 gets injured fighting monsters. He gets his leg broken. So when you see him in his human form as Dan Moroboshi, he's walking with a cane. And he says, I can't transform anymore. So now he's just in charge of the anti of the science patrol team. And he becomes a mentor to Leo. And good grief, he is mean to Leo. He is a harsh master. But Leo needed it. He was young and he needed to get whipped in the shape. But he's a you know, he's a drill sergeant times two in this. He's hard on him. And there's some crazy spoilerific things that happen over the course of the show, and I will spare you those. And then after that, you have to talk about this. I had to add him, though, because he wasn't in this first picture. But the Ultraman all the way at the end, that is Ultraman Jonius. 1979. That is an anime. The first anime Ultraman. And it was called The Ultraman or The Star Ultraman. I've seen it stylized like that. I think it's technically just The Ultraman. 1979, 50 episodes, two compilation movies in America. And they were dubbed, too. And like I said, first it was the first anime Ultraman. It was made by Sunrise Studios, who famously, the same year, what are they? Can anyone tell me here? Yeah. Gundam. Mobile Suit Gundam, the same studio. And you could tell, if you watch the show, the character designs like the human character designs are like, oh my gosh, like the, I can't remember his name, but the ultra host in this, he looks like Amaro Ray. And they, oh, who's this guy? 
It's my friend, Eric. I'm just giving him a hard time. <laughs> but, and like whenever they have ships in it, like they have a main ship that shows up about halfway through the show. And I'm like, that's the freaking white base <laughs> from Gundam. <laughs> Trust me, you you watch it. The, like I said, Mill Creek has been releasing these on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can find a lot of them either on Shout Factory TV because Shout Factory does the streaming now. Mill Creek used to put them up on Movie Spree, and the Movie Spree fell apart. So now they have Shout. They let Shout Factory manage all of that, and Shout Factory funnels everything to Tubi. So you can watch. If you don't want to buy the discs, you can go to Tubi and watch these shows. And they just added the Ultraman, so you can give that a watch. The first. If you like retro anime and you like Gundam, I think you'll enjoy this one. Be warned, the subtitles are weird. <laughs> That's my only real gripe with it. The subtitles are weird. And kind of poorly implemented at points. But, you know, I'm a writer and an English teacher. I see all of your typos. I cannot unsee them. Anyway. <laughs> And then the Showa era comes to an end in 1980 with, naturally, Ultraman 80, which is decidedly less insane. The anime, the anime is not as drug, not as much a drug-induced crazy show like the other ones were, but it takes advantage of the fact that it's animated to do things they couldn't have done in live action, or if they could have, it would have been very difficult to do. So it's wild in that regard. Ultraman 80 is much more grounded by comparison to all of those, which going through these in order, having spent months going through the crazy stuff and then getting to Ultraman 80, it was very quaint. I'm like, oh, oh, thank you. I needed a breather. So this one ran 50 episodes. The thing that was interesting about this one is, and this is another case of, it's not an, a human host. It's an Ultraman that takes human form. And his day job, he was a school teacher. It was very unique. I could only think of one other... Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I can only think of one other superhero who, was, who worked in a school for his day job, and that was Black Lightning. He was a principal. Well, that was a TV show. He was a, I haven't seen that one, though. He's a teacher. Okay, so there's at least two. But here's the thing. After about a dozen episodes, they dropped it. Now, what he would do is he would work as a teacher, and then his weekend job is he was on the science patrol team. Or if stuff was going down while he was doing the teacher thing, he would turn into Ultraman and go fight the monster. Okay. Well, they dropped that. He was just working full-time for the science patrol team. And that went back to low ratings... Because Tokusatsu wasn't popular. Guess what was popular? What are we all here for? Anime. Anime was way more popular than Tokusatsu at this point. And there were also some real world controversies around schools. And given that, for what I've read... The creators of the show really wanted to get into some really heavy, really heavy stuff. Like they even had, a, they even proposed doing an episode where the Yamamoto is his last name. One of his students would have been contemplating suicide. But they said like that's just too much, especially with some real world stuff going on with school. So they 
those two factors together basically made them say, like, we have to course correct. We have to change things so we can keep the show going. And that really bothered me because I really liked that setting. I thought it was really cool. I've worked as a teacher, so it was kind of it was appealing to me in that regard. And like I said, it was unique. Now there were still some good episodes. There were still good stories after that. It just wasn't quite the same. They also started trying to make appeals to nostalgia. They would bring back past monsters and sort of one of the other Ultraman. And then they also introduced you can see her all the way at the far right. That is Yulian. They introduced they introduced her toward the end of the show. That's another female ultra, another ultra woman. And there were all there were also in the Ultraman. There were there were also some ultra ladies, but they didn't they didn't fight battles, and Mother of Ultra didn't either. Yulian got into fights with ultra with Ultraman eighty. Not that. Not, she wasn't fighting him. They would fight together. That's what I mean. I'm editing myself as I go. Can you tell? Anyway, then you come to a period where they go on hiatus. And then f- funneled Ultraman out to do some foreign productions. Yes. Other countries tried their hand at making Ultraman. And we'll talk about those a little bit here. So, in the meantime, Supro is also struggling in the early 80s financially because of an oil crisis. And also, like I said, Tokusatsu just, that Tokusatsu was their bread and butter, just wasn't popular at the time. They would do some things like they made, uh, that's what this picture is here on the left, that's Andro Melos, 1983, which is Ultraman adjacent. It's in the same, it's in the same universe, but hasn't been released in the U.S. yet. And they made a compilation film, 1984, called Ultraman Story, which does have some original footage, but it's a lot of it is recycled from the TV shows, and it starred Ultraman Taro. But compared to what they could have done, you know, a lot of it's stock footage. I mean, this is at a time where people aren't watching and stuff on DVD, Blu-ray, or streaming it all the time. You know, so they could get away with it better back then than, the, than you can now, but still, it's stock footage. So they started outsourcing Ultraman to foreign studios as experiments. There were three of them. 1987, Ultraman The Adventure Begins, a.k.a. Ultraman USA, made by Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, Yogi Bear, the Flintstones, the Jetsons, they made an Ultraman movie. Supposed to be the pilot. That's what this one, the, the top right, no, top left, I should say. Supposed to be the pilot for a new animated series. Didn't get picked up, unfortunately, which is too bad because I've seen it. Hasn't it was released on VHS. It hasn't gotten another release since then. Mostly because nobody knows who owns it, because the Hanna-Barbera library got bought out by several people, several other studios, most notably recently, Warner Brothers. So theoretically Warner Brothers owns it. <laughs> they probably forgot they owned it. <laughs> I can just imagine like Mill Creek or Subaraya coming in. It's like, hey, can we release this? They're like, we have that? Yeah. $2. I mean, it's just not going to care. <laughs> but it was actually really good. It had, and it starred three Ultras. That was it Ultraman Chuck. Like those, these were their names. So it's just the names of the ho uh, of the secret identities. It was Chuck. I can't remember the other one. 
and they had an ultra woman and her name was Beth. So it's ultra woman, Beth, ultra man, Chuck and ultra woman, Beth. And I can't remember who the other guy is. Unfortunately, I'll turn in my card later. Yeah. But the show never got picked up, which is too bad. Uh, you can watch it on YouTube. Somebody ripped the Japanese Blu-ray. No subtitles, all in English. It is beautiful. This Blu-ray transfer is beautiful. If you like 80s animation, this is perfect for you. Absolutely perfect. And then this is the one at the bottom here. 1990, Ultraman Towards the Future or Ultraman Great. 13 episodes, two to three. I can't remember the exact number. I know it's at least two. Compilation films. It was made in Australia, mate. So Ultraman's hanging out in the outback. Fight monsters there. Feels a lot like Doctor Who, like classic Doctor Who when I was watching it. First half of the show is better than the second half because it was an ongoing storyline where they were fighting this kind of like uh, this uh, non sort of non-corporeal, no, not non-corporeal, but like this paras these parasite aliens called the Gudis. So back half, front half's better than the back half, but it's worth seeing. It hasn't been released by Mill Creek yet. These foreign productions, because they're co-productions, the rights, there's some rights issues need to be untangled. I think this one... I think the rights for this one have been untangled so they can release it now. I wouldn't be surprised if they eventually do it. You can find this one also on YouTube. It's in English. There will be Japanese subtitles on it because they did air it in Japan and they had to put Japanese subtitles up because it was all filmed in English. And it did air in the United States, interestingly. Which is funny because next up we have 1993 Ultraman the Ultimate Hero or Ultraman Powered. That's the fella at the, uh, the next to The Adventure Begins. This was an American show, but it never aired in the U.S. They made 13 episodes. The ultra host in this was, I, I can't remember his name now, unfortunately. He was a Japanese, um, it was a Japanese actor who knew English really well, and he was in Godzilla Final Wars, which I think is, whole, which I think is cool. It, it did broadcast in in. Japan in 1995. And you here's what I think is the most likely reason it never aired in the United States. What else started in 1993? That was also Tokusatsu. Power Rangers. Power Rangers would have eaten this show. I have a soft spot for it because it's an American produced show. The suit looks amazing. Absolutely amazing. And Ultraman Power just styled to look like an American superhero. He has a distinct V shape. He's really buff. But the suits in the show looked so good. And they also had some top-tier Japanese ta talent designing the suits and the monsters, including Shinji Iguchi, who helped the... who worked, I should say, on Neon Genesis Evangelion, which we'll get to more of those connections in a bit. The suits were so good that they didn't want to wreck them. So the fight scenes are not great. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of like slapping, <laughs> sort of kicking, energy attacks. Because the, the suits were fragile. They didn't want to wreck them. 
which is too bad. You know, thankfully, both great and powered have come back in some newer stuff produced by Subaraya, and they kept the designs. I mean, like, like Ultraman Great is literally spandex. Like, he's one of the few Ultraman who's actually spandex. The costume's actually spandex. They brought him back. They have newer suits, and they can actually do stuff. <laughs> but they kept the designs, which is cool. And then you get to the start of the Heisei era. With, in 1996, Ultraman Tiga. Ultraman Tiga. This is the one I am currently watching i love this show <laughs> i love this show 52 episodes two to three movies depending on how you want to you know classify them and it's set in a new universe so it's not related to the show with stuff at all and it's revolutionary because this was the F tiga who is the one in the center there he was the first multi-mode ultraman so he would change forms now all he did was change color you get to the newer stuff and they get like pfft, whole other costumes. They look completely different now, but back then all you do was change color. And they tweak the origin of the Ultras a little bit in this. This was also one of only a handful of shows that was actually shown in the United States and it was dubbed. So 2003, so six, seven years after it aired in Japan, it gets dubbed. It's weird that they waited that long. It was dubbed by Four Kids Entertainment, which if you like early 2000s anime, like Yu Yu Hakusho and Yu-Gi-Oh! and all that, Four Kids is dubbing that for you. So they dubbed this one too. They only did 24 episodes. So I, so one source I looked at said they dubbed the whole show, but only the first 24 dubbed episodes aired, and the rest are quote-unquote lost media. Another source I looked at said they only dubbed 24, and then they just stopped because the show wasn't getting the ratings that he did. Fox was, Fox had just lost Power Rangers to Disney, and it was airing on ABC now. So I think they picked this up hoping they would have another Power Rangers on their hands, and it didn't quite work out, but that might be because the dub can't figure out if it wants to play it straight or satirize the show. It's goofy. But, you know, that's a topic for another day. And then you had a couple of direct-to-video movies. Ultraman Zerth, uh, he's the one, he's at the bottom there. He has more red than silver on him. And these were parodies. This was Super Aya parodying their own stuff. And it had a lot of cameos from actors from past Ultraman shows. All right, now I'm going to start moving through these quickly because I haven't seen all of these yet. 97, you had Ultraman Dyna, 51 episodes, three movies. It's a sequel to Tiga. 1998, you have Ultraman Gaia, 51, epi uh, 51 episodes, two movies. It's And this is another new universe, so it's not in the same. But he did cross over with both Tiga and Dyna in a movie. 2000, Ultraman Neos, 12 episodes, direct-to-video, was actually made in 1994. It's basically, a, for what I, I haven't seen this one yet, it's basically a remake of the original show. 2001, Ultraman Cosmos, this is the longest one. 65 episodes, the longest Ultra series. Three movies. It started with a movie, actually. So if you go find Ultraman Cosmos, I can't remember, I think it's called 
the first contact, Ultra My Cosmos, the first contact, you can watch that without having seen the show because that is the start of the show. They launched the show with that movie. And what's interesting about Cosmos is that he's a pacifist. He doesn't want to kill the monsters. So he does everything he can to not kill them. He tries to pacify them, make them nonviolent. And then if that doesn't work, then he'll deal with it. But So he does everything he can to not have to hurt the monsters, which is kind of interesting. Oh, baby. 2004, Ultraman Nexus. This is one of my favorites. This is one of my favorites, despite the fact that it got a little manhandled. 37 episodes. It was supposed to go to 50. And then it got two DVD specials. It's a sequel to a movie, and I love this movie. It's called Ultraman The Next. And it was part of the Ultra N Project, where they were experimenting, Super I was experimenting to see if they could make Ultraman shows or movies for grown-ups. Because the primary audience before this was kids and young adults. Like, Ultraman Cosmos is for really little kids. You know, like, Tiga was appealing to teenagers and young adults. This one, they want to see if they can make Ultraman for grown-ups. So it's really dark. Now, a kid could watch it. It's probably like PG-13 levels. And I, when I say it's for grown-ups, I don't mean like it's full of swearing and nudity and graphic violence. It's a little more violent than a typical Ultraman show. But it's more in terms of the storytelling and the themes that it's going with. Because it deals a lot with PTSD and you know stuff like that. I love it. The last few episodes feel really rushed because they basically cut out an entire final storyline and then tried to compress it into the last few episodes. They cut. There's a whole villain that they cut out and then they just put all of the end game stuff, end of series stuff onto the villain that they were dealing with at that point, which is unfortunate. But I, I love Nexus. And Nexus is the, the guy to the immediate r- uh, right of Tiga there. He looks like he has a helmet. That's Nexus. 2005 Ultraman Max. They were trying to get back to basics with this one, so they went back to being more kid-friendly. I haven't seen this one yet. 39 episodes, one special. It did air on Toku, the Toku Network on Amazon Prime in 2007 with a dub. I haven't seen that, though. And it has a lot of top-tier talent in it, including Shusuke Kaneko, who you know worked on like the live action Death Note movies, some Gamera movies in the '90s and things like that, and Akio Jisoji, who I mentioned before, the art house guy. He came back and he did some crazy episodes. I hear in this one. Then you have 2006 Ultraman Mebius, 50 episodes, seven specials, two movies. One of the things that you'll notice with the Heisei era is that they get a bit more experimental. Special effects get better. They get a little experimental. You know, Pacifist Ultraman, Ultraman for grown-ups, relaunch the show, multi-modes, things like that. These are all tropes that they're starting to use more going forward. And then, you know, this goes back to the Showa-era continuity. It's a direct sequel to Ultraman 80. Picks up, it picks up from there. And it has a lot of returning Ultraman from the Showa era. 2007, Ultra 7X, 12 episodes, a remake of Ultra 7 for grown-ups. I haven't seen it yet. And then 2007, 2008, you have Ultra Galaxy Mega Monster Battle. And then its second season, which is called Never Ending Odyssey, 
So you get 26 episodes total. This is actually more of a space opera set. It's like, it's very Star Trek-esque. And it's set in the same universe as Ultraman. And they have an Ultraman-like character in it, but it's, there isn't, it's not an Ultraman show necessarily. And then it culminates with a movie that I like to call Ultra Word Salad. Because this is, this is the actual full title. Mega Monster Battle, Ultra Galaxy Legends, the movie. Yeah, which introduces both Ultraman Zero, who you'll, I'll show you a picture of him here in a second. He's a really popular Ultraman right now. And Belial, who's an evil Ultraman and is his arch nemesis. He's a really popular villain now too. And then after that, they make a few Ultraman, they make a few movies starring Ultraman Zero. They made two specials and two movies. So Ultraman Zero, The Revenge of Belial, and Ultraman Saga. And Ultraman Zero is the son of Ultra Seven. I like to call him uh, Toku Shonen because he's very much a sh like a Shonen anime character, <laughs> except an Ultraman. It's crazy. He's really OP now. Like they went nuts with him. He has like multiple modes and it's, it's like every, it's like oh, in Dragon Ball every time that you think you've reached the pinnacle of power with, with Saiyans. Nope. They find a new one. That's Ultraman zero. <laughs> and then you get to 2013. This is what they call new generation heroes. So it overlaps with the end of Heisei and the beginning of the Reiwa era, which is the current one that we're in. Heisei technically started by the Japanese calendar in 1989. And then Reiwa started in 2019. So the first two series, most of these I haven't seen in their entirety yet. So 2013, 2014, you have Ultraman Ginga and Ginga S. Get about 24 episodes total with one movie. 2015, I've seen a little bit of this one. Ultraman X, 25 episodes, including three recaps, so they kind of cheat. <laughs> and one movie. I've seen the movie for Ultraman X, and I was introduced to an actual weapon. This is an actual weapon. The Cotton Candy Cannon. It's a pink laser that makes cotton candy. Yeah, get my uh, get my book bag out of there, my small book bag, and my lunchbox. Well, no, the lunchbox can stay because I won't need that till tomorrow. No lunchbox, you can leave that there, and the I got my water bottle here, so yeah, and the laptop bag. So yeah, I'll get my book bag. Everything else can stay. All right, we'll bum rush through this because we got to get done. I knew this one was going to be long. 2016, 2017, Ultraman Orb and Ultraman Orb, the origin saga. 25 episodes for Orb, 12 episodes for Origin and one movie. Origin is a web series, and I think it's a prequel. 2017, Ultraman Jeed. I used to think it was Geed. It's actually pronounced Jeed. And Jeed is the son of Belial. So he's the son of one of the bad guys. So that's a big character conflict for him. The, let me see. Which one of these is G? I think Jeed is the one in the center in this picture. He has the more aggressive looking eyes because he got, he got his daddy's eyes. 
So 25 episodes, one movie. This becomes the formula since then. This era of Ultraman is extremely toyetic because this is when Bandai had a controlling, bought a controlling share of Subaraya. So they had to make sure that the shows were pushing the toys a lot. I mean, it's not like, you know, if you grew up in the 80s, you were used to that with G.I. Joe Transformers all that, where it's like, oh, look, these are animated versions of the toys. No, like these are live action shows and they are literally using the toys as props. Like, I think in Ultraman, I think it was Ultraman X, they had little figurines of past Ultraman called Spark Dolls, and that's how they would get power-ups. Or the transformation devices. They weren't, like, props that they made at the studio that people would use on the show. And then they would make a toy replica that wouldn't look quite as good, you know, that you could go buy at the store for the transformation devices. No, they literally used the toy, the toy of the transformation device as the prop in the show. That's how hard they were pushing the toys in this. Because yeah, Subaraya needed the money so they could stay in business. And Bandai is like, push the toys. You know, <laughs> that's all they cared about. And Toei has been doing that for a real, even longer with Kamen Rider and Super Sentai. And it's way more blatant. I've tried watching newer Sentai and Rider, and it's so freakishly blatant that I'm like, I just... I, I can barely stand to watch any of it. There's a bit more restraint I've noticed with Ultraman. And for what I, I've heard rumors that the, the crews working on Ultraman and Subaraya really don't like the fact that they have to push the toys. They would rather not. <laughs> but on the other hand, the you know, money and even going back to the sixties with the old stuff, they were to a certain extent, they were still per pushing the merchandise. They would they would the merchandise would occasionally show up in the old shows, but it was supposed to be actual in-universe artifacts. Like there'd be kids who would have the Ultraman toys that you could go buy at the store, but they somehow had them, which is very meta to say the least. All right, twenty eighteen Ultraman. Uh, Ultraman. It's actually it's not R slash B. It's actually pronounced Rube. I haven't seen this one yet. It has twin Ultraman, twin boys. And one's red, one's blue. That's where the, the name comes from. 25 episodes, one movie. This is the standard now. They make fewer, they make shorter seasons, but they the finale is always a movie. And it's the most recent one available from Milk Creek. So if you want to get it on physical media or watch it on Tubi, this is the newest one you can get. And are they in the picture? Yeah, the the two shorter guys right behind Jeed in the center there. That's them. And then, this is why I added this picture there at the bottom. Got to talk about this one. It's an anime convention. Well, mostly anime convention. But 2019 Ultraman, which is, uh, which is a Netflix anime, ran for three seasons. They're done, unfortunately. 31 episodes total. It's based on a manga. The manga is still going. So you can go read the manga. And it's a direct reimagined sequel to the nineteen ninety to the nineteen sixty six series. The the protagonist in that is the son of Shin Hayata, so the original Ultraman. But it's really different. It's not aliens bonding with humans and transforming. No, it's power suits. So it's more like Ultraman by way of Iron Man. Now they do transform. They even introduce an Ultra Woman. Ultra woman who basically gets a magical girl transformation. Like 
I was watching it and I sent it to my friend who loves Sailor Moon and I said, tell me this doesn't look straight out of Sailor Moon. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, it does. <laughs> 2019, Ultraman Taiga, not Tiga, Taiga. Yeah, 25 episodes, one movie. This is the first of the Reiwa era. All right, then you get Ultraman Z or Zet, because everywhere else in the world that letter is pronounced Z or Zet. It's a thing. 25 episodes, one movie, which was a crossover with the next show. And what's notable about this one is that this one was the first one to be simulcast on Subaraya Productions' YouTube channel. And now it's been dubbed. They've been re they've been re-uploading episodes with an English dub now. Because it got crazy popular. But remember, this is 2020. It's the height of quarantine. And it's a wholesome, uplifting show about a superhero defeating evil aliens and monsters. And they were pushing it out with subtitles to the whole world at the same time. We needed it. Ultraman Z was the hero we deserved (laughs) to steal from Batman there. And then after that, every other Ultraman show that they've produced, they would simulcast on YouTube with subtitles. So you have Ultraman Trigger, New Generation Tiga, same thing, 25 episodes, one movie. Their movie, because Z didn't get a proper movie because of the pandemic, so they just made a crossover movie between Z and Trigger. And it's a remake of Tiga. Hence the name, New Generation Tiga. I'm going to be honest with you, I haven't finished Tiga yet. Trigger's not as good. Trigger's not as good. It's not even as good as Z. Then uh, 2022, this is the most recent one that just finished. Ultraman Decker. Again, 25 episodes, one movie. It's a remake of Dinah, so it's a sequel to Trigger. And then you had the movie, which actually had a limited theatrical run in the United States, and it's going to be out on DVD and Blu-ray next month. Shin Ultraman. It's a reimagining of the 1966 series. And it was made by the creative team behind Neon Genesis Evangelion. Directed by Shinji Aguchi, who did character design. And written by Hideaki Anno. And he also did some of the mocap for Ultraman. Because he's crazy. And because he made an Ultraman fan film back in the 80s. When he was a young, up-and-coming filmmaker. And then this is the next show that's coming. Ultraman Blazar. And if we have a little bit of time, I will show you the trailer for Ultraman Blazar. I also would like, if they'll let us, I don't think they're going to come rushing in here to kick us out just yet. I would also like to show you a few Ultraman uh, theme songs. Just to show you kind of the progression because there's very distinct flavors between the different eras, and you can see some progression. And also, you can definitely tell how similar they are to anime, particularly anime of those uh, you know, of its eras. You'll see a lot of similarities. So, that's the teacher guy. Yeah, from Ultraman 80. Yeah, Takeshi Yamato. So, does anyone have any questions, or should I... I mean, we've gone a little bit over... Unfortunately, oh, we're really close. Well, we're really close to our finishing time. But does anyone have any questions? We went through a lot of stuff. I get it. 
But I'll take questions now, and then I will look at a few videos. I don't know if you'll be able to hear them, but hopefully you will. Tubi or Shout Factory TV. Not all of them, most of them. And uh, anything that, uh, like Z going forward, you know, so, trig uh, so Z, Trigger, and Decker, you can watch those on either Subaraya's YouTube channel or on Ultraman Connection, which is the main English language YouTube channel, uh, not YouTube channel, a website for Ultraman. You can see a lot of those there. But I would not... I would almost bet money that Mill Creek's going to do a second wave. They finished what they were originally contracted to do. I would bet money that they're going to do a second wave of releases because those Ultraman releases, even though some of them were better than others, they made money hand over fist with them. So they'll do a second wave. I guarantee you. Anyone else have some questions? Because I know we went over a lot of stuff. I'll even take one from the bearded weirdo back there. <laughs> well, that would be Nerd Chapel. You guys should all come see us there tomorrow. You can learn about all of my podcasts and check out all of our books, including some fiction that I've written, among other things. Anything else? I mean, I, this is your opportunity to ask the pseudo-expert here <laughs> questions about Ultraman. Yes. Okay, that is a really good question to ask. Because, like I said, this is a massive franchise. And so you're like, where do you start? Well, it depends on how you want to approach it. Do you want to go chronologically? Start with Ultra Q. Or... If you don't want to watch Ultra Q, you could just start with the original Ultraman. I think you should watch Ultra Q, and you can go from there. If you would rather start with the newer stuff, I would say Ginga would be a good place. That's the start of a new era, or Z. Z is extremely accessible, and now it has a dub. So if you prefer dubs to subtitles, you can watch it now. And uh, the dub episodes are still being released. The whole series is not out yet with a dub. I think they're up to like episode, I think, 19 out of the 25. So that'd be a good place to start too. And Z has been very popular. It's very modern. But if you like, if you like 90s era stuff, I would start with Tiga. Tiga is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And if you, so if you want to start with the Heisei era, go forward, you could do that. If you prefer darker stuff, watch Ultraman Nexus. Tiga's a little bit dark at points too, but the I know for sure Ultraman Nexus. You know, that that's really good. Although you want to start with the Ultraman the next movie, because it's the prequel to it. So there's a couple different ways you could approach it. It really just depends on what you're looking for and what your sensibilities are. There's an Ultraman show for basically everybody out there. If you want to start with something shorter, I would say give Ultra 7X a try or Ultraman Neos, they're shorter. Like I said, if you want to try the foreign stuff, even though I wouldn't call that typical Ultraman, but they're only 13 episodes, so they're relatively small commitments. But like I said, because they're foreign-made stuff, that's not going to be typical Ultraman. So there's a lot of things to take into consideration with that. So don't feel like you have to approach it a particular way. 
you know, take this overview that I've done and kind of figure, I was like, I want to see that one. I mean, I've jumped around a little bit. I mean, I, I watched Nexus when I was still trying to watch the Showa era stuff because for a while, Nexus and a few of the other shows, the, the Heisei shows were airing on Crunchyroll. And then I found out that they were going to get removed in a week. <laughs> so I'm like, watching Nexus now. Because <laughs> at that time, there wasn't a DVD release. So this was like the only way I could watch it was to watch it on Crunchyroll. So I binged it in a week. <laughs> and I loved every second of it. So, like I said, don't feel... If you want to watch the anime, if you were like, I want to... I love anime. I'm not so sure about Tokusatsu yet. You know, watch the Netflix show. Watch The Ultraman. I didn't mention it, but there's a... there's a Mill Creek released an early 90s anime called Ultraman Kids that's for really little children. And it's incredibly wholesome and endearing. Is that really an action show? It's more of an adventure show. I've only watched a few episodes. And that's only 26 episodes, too, so that's a low commitment, too. But if you have little kids who like anime and you want to see if they would like Ultraman, that might not be bad. The only problem is that it's subtitled. It's not dubbed. So you may have to either hope they can read or read the subtitles for them. Does that answer your question? Okay. Anything else? Anything else? Okay. Speak now, forever hold your peace. Ready, set, go. All right, so that's Ultraman Mebius giving you a thumbs up, saying thanks for coming, and these were most of my sources. I will also would like to add, I'm trying to remember what issue number it is, but my friend Daniel DeMana wrote an article for Kaiju Ramen Magazine that does a very concise overview of the show of the franchise and give some pointers about where to start and then he and i did an episode of henshin men which is one of my podcasts i believe it was i think it's like episode it's 50 something it's episode 50 something where we basically did a podcast discussion of that article that he wrote and went and did a lot of the stuff that we did here but not quite not in quite as much detail so if you want to listen to a podcast that talks about it, that'd be a good place to start too. So those would be the other two sources that I would add to this. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nate Marchand. If you want to join the discussion and be heard on the show, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Our website is Monster Island Film Vault. Com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Monster Island Film Vault and on Twitter where our handle is at the Monster Isla One. You can subscribe to us on YouTube, Spotify, and TikTok. Follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy and our many other colorful characters using the links in the show notes. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wanderer on the Offensive, live edit by B33J. Serax, Juan Madrono, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack Battle with the Colossus and The Opened Way Battle with the Colossus by Koatani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended or implied. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and or Podchaser to spread the word about the show. You can also support us by joining MIFV Max on Patreon. 
The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara! <laughs>